People of God in Christ, the next passage in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans is about God's revelation. When we hear that word, revelation, we might first think of the book of Revelation at the end of our Bibles. It's interesting that uh, both the first and the last books of the Bible are named by the first words of each book. Genesis, meaning beginning, is so named because the opening words are in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the book of Revelation is so named because the opening words are the revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. But what is equally interesting and important uh, to know is that Revelation could be the title for the entire Bible. That's what the Bible is, Revelation, and that's what it does. The Bible is the Word of God to reveal to us His truth. We are living increasingly in a culture that claims that there is no truth, uh, especially no moral truth. As much as we lament such rebellion of sinners against God, we can yet laugh at it a bit because it's obviously not what anyone really believes. Just steal their wallet or their purse and they will not hesitate to complain that what you have done is wrong. So brothers and sisters, beware the way of the world, a world that will encourage you to excuse your sin and doubt your faith by saying there is no truth. But then, having bewared the world, rejoice. Rejoice in the truth of God revealed in His Word. And the Bible even speaks of God's revelation in two senses. Number one, the Bible points out and teaches that God has already revealed Himself through what He has made in creation. Paul makes the point in the very text we are hearing this morning, and his teaching echoes what the Hebrew Scriptures say in in Psalm 8, as we have dealt with recently, and in Psalm 19 and elsewhere, that creation itself is the revelation of God, revealing not only that He exists, but revealing the very character of God, or as our catechism says, what God is. The revelation of God in and through creation is called general revelation. Only let us not think that the word general means nonspecific, because Paul even teaches that what can be known about God is plain to all men. His eternal power and divine nature having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But then there is the special revelation of God, and when we hear the word special, let us also hear the word gracious. God is gracious to come and to speak further words to sinful mankind. It's a little bit like when a parent gives instructions to a child, telling the child once should be enough, so that when the child doesn't obey, punishment is due. But when the punishment is delayed and the instruction given again, that's grace. 
And so it is with God's special revelation. General revelation is clear and sufficient and leaves mankind without excuse. But God has spoken again beyond creation. God has spoken a special word and a gracious word. And his name is Jesus Christ. So here's a passage of God's word that is all about God's revelation. And it begins with the revelation of righteousness. In verse 16, we hear Paul's memorable words, his bold declaration of faith, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here is why, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then verse 17 brings another explanation. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So the first point is the revelation of righteousness. But let's trace Paul's logic here. First, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel and and he declares it. We, We should declare it too. But we should also ask, why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Uh, This as review from last time. It's because a world of unbelief thinks that the gospel is nonsense, even foolishness. But even more, the world is offended by the gospel and often reacts with hostility toward the gospel and toward those who are preaching it. If you think about it, If the world thinks the gospel is foolishness, then why can't they just ignore it? Why doesn't the world just have pity on us, uh, poor foolish Christians, for believing something so foolish as they see it? But the world doesn't pity those who believe the gospel. They hate those who believe the gospel, which in a way is even evidence for the truth of the gospel. In other words, they can call it foolishness, but they know that it's true. So instead of just ignoring the church, their goal, if if they can get their way, is to silence the church and, and even to eliminate the church. Paul knew this by experience. And he knew that if the Romans hadn't experienced it yet, they soon would. So he declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel, surely to encourage the believers in Rome to do the same, to have the same faith. And Paul gives the reason why it's worth standing up to the world and not being ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, let the world scoff and mock Let them even attack. But God is at work, powerfully at work, through the preaching of the gospel to save sinners. But here's the second reason, the the further logic, why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, and neither must we be. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If we know the book of Romans, we will likely recognize that here is Paul's thesis statement. Uh, Here is his early statement of the central message of his letter to the Romans. His message is the gospel, which Paul has already made clear in verse 1, 
uh, when he writes that he is called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In verse 9, Paul calls it the gospel of God's Son. In verse 15, he expresses his eagerness to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But here in verse 17 is Paul's clearest statement of the gospel. It is the revelation of God's righteousness, the righteousness that is from faith and for faith, so that the righteous might live by faith. The word righteousness is not unfamiliar, uh, is not an unfamiliar word to us, and, and how should we define it? It's a word that is often heard to mean the same as God's holiness. And if that's what Paul meant, it is certainly true that the gospel reveals the holiness of God. The gospel, the good news, is that God gave his son to take the punishment for the sin of his people. But why was the cross necessary for salvation? Because in his holiness, God is the just judge of sin. But the word righteousness is distinct from the word holiness, as righteousness means that God always does what is right. So in this sense, holiness is what God is. Righteousness is what God does specifically that he does, he always does what is right. He always acts according to his holiness. And this sense of God's righteousness is also revealed in the gospel as through the coming and the saving work of Christ. God did what he promised to do. In Christ, God did what was right. He rightly fulfilled his many promises to send a Savior to save his people from their sins. In a number of the Psalms, we can hear the psalmist crying out to God and appealing to the righteousness of God. O Lord, are you not the God of righteousness? Do you not always do what is right? And, and is it not right for you to do what you have promised? And have you not promised to care for and bless your people? In this sense of the righteousness of God, righteousness comes closer in meaning to the word faithfulness. To say that God is righteous is to point to his faithfulness to do what he has promised to do. But there is another sense of the righteousness of God that is really at the heart of Paul's meaning here. Again, if we know the book of Romans, if we, if we know where Paul is going with this thesis statement, then we can hear Paul proclaiming not just the righteousness of God, but even the righteousness from God. In fact, there are some scholars and, and commentators who would rather see this verse translated as, for in it, uh, in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed from faith. For faith. But even if not, even if it says the righteousness of God, the meaning is clear when Paul writes, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. It becomes clear that Paul is talking about what he teaches elsewhere, that the plan of God for the salvation of his people is to give them the gift of righteousness. 
the revelation of righteousness in the gospel is that the righteousness of God is the righteousness that he gives as a pure gift in order to save his people from his own judgment for their sin. The words from faith for faith really is a rather strange construction. Uh, We might say uh, it's an unusual combination of words, uh, two prepositional phrases with the word faith as the object of each one. So that Paul's most basic point is to put a clear emphasis on faith. And this, too, will be Paul's teaching in his letter to the Romans, that the righteousness of God comes to the sinner as a gift so that it comes by faith and not by works. This is why the gospel is good news. Here, in fact, is the glory of the gospel, if we are given to see it, that God gives his own righteousness to the sinner. And the sinner is saved merely by receiving it. Faith is resting rather than working. Faith is receiving rather than earning. Some people think, we ourselves are given to think, uh, that the law is God's way of salvation. God has given his law, his, his Ten Commandments, Uh, We seek to be the best people we can be, and and all is well. Somehow we fail to notice that we haven't kept the law. Uh, We don't uh, keep the law, and yet somehow we will obey the law starting now, and all will be well. But we are sinners before God, even born into sin, corrupt from conception on. So here's the good news, that that though God is the just judge of sin, He is also the gracious Savior of His sinful people through the pure gift of His righteousness to them, so that it can only be received by faith, not by working, but resting, not earning, but receiving the gift from God through Christ. Think of it this way, that uh, if someone came to you and said, uh, here is a a million dollars, go ahead, I want to to give it to you. If that happened, would we take it? Uh, Of course we would, (laughs) if only we could meet that guy. And we wouldn't pull out our wallet and say, uh, okay, I'll take it, but let me pay you something for it. Here, uh, uh, I have a 20 Let me pay you for it. What sense would it make to try to pay $20 for a million dollars? And so it is with the righteousness of God coming to us as a gift. What sense does it make to to try to earn it? Earn it with what? Trying to exchange our righteousness for God's righteousness only cheapens the gift. Even more, we don't even have the 20 to pay for the million. As sinners, we are not just short on funds. We are destitute before a holy God. We are not only destitute, we are deeply and direly in debt to God. We owe Him our very lives, and He owes us the very hell that Jesus took for us on the cross. 
On one hand, it's, it's humiliating for us, which is why so many people hate the gospel, because it, it humiliates it. It butts up against their pride. It's humiliating to be told that your own righteousness is useless. In fact, the law of God is meant to teach us that we have no righteousness whatsoever because righteousness means always doing what is right. Not sometimes, not most of the time, not having good intentions, but always doing what is right. Paul clearly warns us in Galatians 3 verse 10, which we we heard already earlier, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And our Lord himself said, recorded in Matthew five forty-eight, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So on the other hand, if we humble ourselves under the gospel, the righteousness of God exalts us. And it happens by faith, a, a faith that rests and merely receives. I keep saying merely to, to emphasize that it's not by any of our own obedience, but it's not a mere faith when we consider what becomes ours by faith the very righteousness of God as his free gift to me. So here is Paul's second reason for not being ashamed of the gospel. He is not ashamed, and neither must we be, because how can you be ashamed of such good news? Acceptance from God by the gift of his righteousness. Access into the holy presence of God by the gift of his righteousness. Deliverance from his judgment and worthiness of his blessing by the gift of his righteousness. Ultimately, heaven and not hell by the gift of his righteousness to be received merely by faith, merely by resting in the gift of God in Christ. So instead of being ashamed of the gospel, receive it by faith. Faith at the start as we merely receive the very righteousness of God as a gift, and faith throughout a life lived rejoicing in the boundless grace of God in Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel, even just by way of Paul's thesis statement, although we're we're pulling in things from uh, Paul's later teaching in Romans as well. And Paul makes it clear that this gospel, this good news, this gift of righteousness is the revelation of God. And he wants his readers to see the true glory of this gospel. So that next he writes of another revelation from God, the revelation of wrath. Paul continues in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is now the fourth of Paul's four statements. In verse 15, he is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because, or for, he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because, or for, 
It is the power of God to save sinners, both Jew and Gentile. Why else is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because, for the gospel is God's revelation of his righteousness, even the gift of his righteousness to the sinner who believes. And so, why is the gift of righteousness so important and so glorious? Because, or for, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so we have the two together. Can we hear it? General and special revelation. Paul uses the same language, saying that the righteousness of God is revealed and the wrath of God is revealed. But the first, the gospel, is special revelation. The second is general revelation. The point is that the revelation of God's saving righteousness has been spoken into a world where the revelation of God's wrath has been revealed from the beginning. To say that God's wrath is revealed is not to say that God's wrath has only recently been revealed. Instead, it is revealed. It is known by all people on the face of the earth. Which brings us very quickly to the last point, the revelation of sin. Once you understand that the knowledge of God is plainly revealed in all that God has made, you can then understand what sin is. Until we have the knowledge of God, sin will only be naughtiness. Sin will be little, when actually sin is the entire condition of mankind. And so Paul teaches four things revealed about sin by the revelation of the knowledge of God. When we see that God shows himself by what he has made, then sin is not innocent ignorance, but the suppression of the knowledge of God. Verse 18 again, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And how does that work? What Paul would seem to be teaching is that people sin to some degree in order to prove that there is no God. Or if there is a God, he he doesn't know. Or he knows but doesn't care. Or he cares some, but not a whole lot. It might be rather simplistic, but uh, consider this illustration. Uh, A child is told don't play in the street. But once the command is given, the child goes and plays in the street. Nothing bad happens. So he concludes, see, my, my mother doesn't know what she is talking about. Or the child is told, uh, don't run with scissors in your hand. If you remember that from your childhood, uh, you'll fall and, and hurt yourself. So the child runs around the room with scissors in his hand, shouting, See, it doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. Even more, people suppress the truth of God by their greed and their lust, by so charging into sin that the sin itself keeps them from thinking logically. And so sin leads to sin, and to other sins, and to more sin, further and further, deeper and deeper, into a willful 
denial of the very existence of God. Next, Paul teaches that sin is not honoring God. He writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Here is the significance of being in church on the Lord's Day. Uh, Here is why prayer before meals and and prayer to start and, and end the day is so important. Of course, a person can attend church and pray without really meaning it, but not doing it at all is dishonoring to God. We live each day in, the, in a world that God made just for us. He didn't make the world because He needed to make it, or He needed it. And God didn't make the world for the sake of any of the other creatures. He made it for us. He created the world and then set us in the world for our good, for our pleasure, for our enjoyment, for our blessedness. And yet, even as His blessing to mankind continues, people daily neglect to honor Him. Related to this, but worth separating out, I think, sin is not giving thanks to God. We teach our children to say thank you, and and we are mortified when our children are given a gift and, and they only harumph. But it's not just a problem with children. Adults, too, fail to give thanks. And that's all that God leaves mankind to do. That was the point of his resting on the seventh day after creation to testify that, uh, that, that the pattern was full. The blessing was complete, nothing missing and nothing more to be earned. And God was calling mankind to rest as well, to rest on the Lord's day and to say thank you. But that's too much. For sinful man. We want to be independent, self-existing, self-sufficient. In short, we want to be God. It's not enough to be blessed by God. Sin is that condition of the human heart in which we would take God's own place as creator of the world. And so finally, by the knowledge of God revealed... So sin is revealed as utter foolishness. How can we be so foolish? We have certain expressions that uh, describe foolishness, like uh, biting the hand that feeds you, or uh, uh, cutting off the branch you're sitting on, uh, or cutting off your nose to spite your face. But all such expressions pale When set against the foolishness of mankind in sin, Paul writes in verses 22 and 23, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So how can we be so foolish? But also, how then can we be saved? We must be righteous before God, but we have none. Uh, We have and are the exact opposite of righteousness. Okay, so God will provide the righteousness and simply give it to sinners. Only sinners are too proud to receive it. By the gift of righteousness, all that is needed is faith. But where is faith going to come from? 
when sinners even hate the God who must save them if they are to be saved. This then is again why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. The gospel is the only hope for those who are fully dedicated to their sin and fully opposed to the God who must save them. Paul knew the power of God in Christ to turn him, to change him, to remake him. And Paul knew that God was about the business of doing the same for others through the gospel. The gospel of God is good news, even the best news, because it meets the sinner right where he is or she is. The sinner refuses the truth, even suppresses the truth that is right before their eyes in creation. The sinner refuses to honor the good God who created all things. The sinner refuses to give thanks to God. The sinner lives in foolishness, daily becoming more foolish still. But the gospel is the power of God to provide the gift of righteousness and to put the faith to receive it into the heart of those whom he saves. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so glad for your gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. Even more, we are so glad that your power is in the gospel. And so may we preach it boldly as a church. And may your power indeed be at work, saving us, saving sinners, saving many to come to faith, to be brought to faith in Jesus Christ out of the utter lostness of sin. Thank you for the gospel. And may it be powerful yet in our own day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.